Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 10, Mentoring Student Teachers with Dr Sally Bethel. Hello and welcome back to the podcast and it's a very warm welcome to Dr Sally Bethel. (laughs) Thank you Tom. (laughs) Well we say welcome back you were not Dr Sally Bethel last time you were here but now you are so congratulations. Thank you six long years. (laughs) (laughs) How do you feel Sam? Well it was one of those things I thought I would finish it and just go the world would drop around me and I'd feel liberated but actually you've just realised all the other things you put on the back burner and you kind of crack on so when it when I'd finished it it was really get ready again for the next academic year what it has been nice is I have a Tuesday off and uh, now I'm actually getting a Tuesday to do the things that I want to do with it so that is that is slowly creeping in so that's nice well that's a good thing Um, but we are here to talk about it today so you're going to have to put your head back in that (laughs) in that space and for those long-standing listeners you will know that Sally actually the first episode that you came on to on our podcast was to talk about coaching and mentoring (laughs) and it's great that now we've arrived at the episode about your doctorate which is really focusing on mentors so remind our listeners now uh, well tell our listeners what was the sort of aim the the sort of focus and the sort of intended outcomes of your ed Well, what I wanted to do was generate a self-reflection tool for mentors to just help them guide the process of thinking about how they had mentored their student, really looking at providing them with a focus, I think. I did a scoping study with some PE mentors and they're lovely and they work really, really hard and we talked about their role and all the things that they do and they go above and beyond. But when you talk to them about the breadth of the role, you know, how do they reflect on the role? Because they all said they were reflective practitioners. When they started to talk about their role, they weren't very articulate. They couldn't identify quickly aspects of their role it was very generic how they were talking and I think it was just the fact that they kind of never seen in an easy format what it is that that they could be doing as a mentor so the range of things that the role could entail and I just wondered that if maybe I could produce a graphic that was clear and concise um, that was easy to understand and use and and just kind of represented the role, but in a nice, clear A4 format. Uh, and so I tried to devise that over a period of time. And it was partially informed by literature, so reading around mentoring and what sort of things mentors do. It was partly informed by the programme that we deliver and what we wanted mentors to do. But it was also informed by mentors telling me what they wanted to look like, how they wanted to use it. And so sort of over the, we sort of did six iterations of it eventually to just produce this graphic that mentors can sit and look at when they've finished a clinical practice and go, oh, actually, yes, I did certain aspects a lot with my students. I used certain features of pedagogy or I worked with my department to do these things and then just sort of go, well, those were good things. Those helped my students. Or were there aspects that they didn't use because they didn't know about it or they chose not to because they didn't think it was appropriate for their student teacher? And it just gave them a focus to be able to 
look back and make some decisions about what they've done well and perhaps areas that they might like to develop in. And this is an interesting thing about education research, isn't it? Because I suppose those from outside that think research, they think of you as the research as this sort of neutral figure that floats above the fray and sort of does things to your subjects but it doesn't work like that in education does it because we're kind of part of this really messy scene and what really grabbed me about this is you didn't design a tool and kind of impose it on these people you designed it with them I I think that was really important I think Part of the doctorate for me that I found particularly interesting was was thinking about the sort of philosophy behind what you're doing and recognising that I really wanted to engage with my men to say exactly what you've said, Tom, is I didn't want to do something to them. And I think part of the rationale for doing the study in the first place was at the time we were doing a lot of work with mentors and we were telling them what they were doing well and we were telling them what they needed to develop. And actually, if part of teacher agency is owning it, you don't want somebody to you want to work with that person. And so that was a really important feature to me of sort of saying to them, you know, is it useful? What can we change? What would you want in there? But also using the literature to guide it as well. Mm. So coming at it from both angles, really. What were other people saying outside our institution, but what were our mentors saying and what was useful to them? And I think probably that was one of the major things at the end of it was mentors saying, I found it useful. It was useful to to my selection of, of participants. I'm really curious about this iterative process that you went through to come up with the final version mm. of the reflection tool. Can I just correct yeah, you, for Emma? It. Sorry, it's not a final version. It's oh, never. It will never be finished. Of course. I think it's be- that iterative process means at the time that this is written, mm. it was re- it was fit for purpose. We're going through reaccreditation now, so it might yeah. be that we want mentors to do certain different things, or mentors want different. So it will always be Evolving. changing. Okay, and and I think that was part of the the idea was, you know, it's going to be right for us at this moment. It will need to be adapted to reflect change, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's really important. But also, another institution could go, well, I kind of like the idea, but our priorities are different to yours. Mm. But the concept is good, mm. so they can take it and they can play with it. They can change little sections of it and go, we don't. Do do that but we do do this fine you know so I think as a it's it's never going to be finished it's it's a it's a concept more than anything else got it um well I I guess what I'm interested in is what the mentors brought to it that you hadn't that hadn't occurred to you What, what did they bring um and what was their conception of the role that you perhaps hadn't considered well I think initially I, I I only worked with some PE mentors to start off with and and that gave me sort of I could really dig deep with them and I think one of the things was just putting it into segments initially so if you look at the tool it's colorful the mentors sort of suggested that because it although the teaching standards are they don't match up with this but they come in colors they kind of like that concept part so I thought, that's doable you know adding color in there And they also talked about, as a mentor in a department, that they had this other role of coordinating staff, which I hadn't really thought about, but actually that's quite an important feature. You know, it's not important for all mentors because some of them are one-people departments. But when you have a number of teachers, that's part of your role is to coordinate. And I completely missed that. So that came in. And I think the other thing was I put teaching in as, as the sector rather than pedagogy. 
And they corrected me. And I think I kind of dumbed it down to just go, I, I won't use the word pedagogy. And they were like, no, we know what pedagogy is. Put it in there sort of thing. So they corrected me on certain things. And then there were places where there was slight misunderstanding. So in the procedural part, there was an element about assessing. And one of the mentors had read that as the student teacher learning to assess rather than them assessing the student teacher. So just changing the wording. So they, they brought out just little corrections. So they were refinements all the way through. And I think by the time I got to the last iteration of it, the mentors had real difficulty suggesting what they would change. But I thought, well, one, I thought perhaps they are just absolutely shattered. We'd just come out of the second lockdown. And to be honest, they were tired and whether or not they really didn't care by that stage. Or on a more positive note, it was actually perhaps we got to the stage where you go, we've, we've done so many refinements to it now. Maybe this is it. This, this is good to go for a year. So they picked up different things. Lots of them mentioned when you do the interviews about just the presentation of it, though, what they liked about it and the fact that it's it's really basic. So it doesn't require you answering loads of questions. It doesn't require you filling in a form. It provokes thought. And... I think probably one of the other things is it allows you to have a conversation because it's provoked thought, but you've got very fixed things to talk about. Mm. The other thing I found <laughs> fascinating was that you found that the mentors reflected differently depending on the student teacher that they had with them. So, for example, their reflection on the aspects of their role that were important sort of flexed and changed depending on the needs of the student teacher. I thought that was really fascinating that the, the tool allowed them to do that. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things we sort of worked on as well was that the, there isn't a right answer. It looked like you were rag rating. I think this was another conversation we had. It was just a really simple scale of one to three for each aspect. So things like, you know, did you do a lot of classroom management with your student teacher? One, not very much. Three, a lot. You know, and that was very much dependent on the student teacher. But some of them thought, I, I should have a three there. And I was like, no, 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 because you might have a student that comes to you who's got a load of experience already. You don't need to spend time on that because they know that. Mm. So by the time we get into the last iteration, they were much more familiar with the idea is, is you're creating a profile of how you mentored a unique teacher. So these teachers are all different. They come with lots of different experiences. They need different things. And that was a really, I, mean, I thought for me that that's a really useful thing for mentors to appreciate is look at the person in front of you. And no matter what you've had before, they're going to need slightly different things. And can you really refine what you're doing to match your student teacher to help them make progress? Because they're not the same. But also mentors they are different and they have different priorities as well. So what are important to them? So it is, you know, the bit that you said at the start, Tom, that it's ed education is really messy, you know, and sort of it's just this allowed them to focus and perhaps recognise that messiness. There's not a right answer. So just thinking about the applications of this then, I mean, you've said your tool is not not the finished article um, and we know that you've done the, the professional doctorate. One of the really attractive features of the professional doctorate is you get something useful out of the end of it <laughs> rather than something quite abstract. So, I mean, if somebody, say, a school or, or a department wanted to take your work and use it, would you be happier if they if they took the tool and applied it or is it more about the process of generating their own tool by replicating your process 
oh, that's a good wrong time. I don't know. I, don't, I wouldn't be offended at all. I, the idea that anybody would just actually start thinking about using it. And it was quite interesting, actually, because one of the primary schools has done that, has sort of said to me, are we okay to use it? And I was like, please, fill your boots, please. Get, I want it used by anybody. I don't mind almost how you use it. So they've used it as in almost a group session. So uh, people reflect individually, but then they have conversation as a group. They didn't actually change the tool. So they used the tool as it was um, in its format, but how they've applied it, the process you still do the individual part but then it it's used to generate conversation as a small mentoring community so they like the idea that they had something ready to use I think but if somebody came along to me and said actually in our school this is a priority we'd like coaching to feature in there because that's something that we I would have no problem with it I think what I wanted to give is something that you could play with it use it and if it gets you the results that you're looking for it's interesting that you rightly pointed out that it is unfinished well it's not that it's unfinished it can be changed so it's okay for this moment in time yes but as we go through accreditation you know okay it might be just go we'll have to take something out because that's now not in line with what we're doing yes or or national priorities change Mm. so okay we need to reflect those things it needs to have the flexibility to do that well that's what i thought we'd dive into next because as we know a big feature of our newly accredited or our our accredited uh, programs that started in 2019 a, a really important dimension of that is research and inquiry mm-hmm. and you found something quite interesting when using the tool with um, the participants in your study about this new dimension and their perception of it and within the sort of um, the realms of their role as mentor mm-hmm. do you want to tell us about that yeah it was interesting because when I was analyzing their documented evidence which was their annotated self-evaluation tool I was looking for similarities and differences and one the similarities was all of them scored research and inquiry supporting student teachers with their research and inquiry activities low so you know they were not giving that priority and that was on the final time that I did it now the final time that I did it we had just come out of the covid second lockdown so student teachers on their first clinical practice had been online they'd done most of their teaching online So when they came back into school, lots of mentors went, do you know what? The basic things that you would do in clinical practice, one, you know, can you get your children into the classroom? Can you get them sat down? Can you get them behaving? They hadn't had that experience. So they were almost doing their their teaching practice back to front. They didn't have the foundational skills in the classroom. So they were doing a lot of that. So when you looked at the sort of scores that they were giving for the pedagogy, the basics of pedagogy, they were quite high. And then the things that you go, the more sophisticated things, go, look, we, we haven't got time to concentrate on that. Research and inquiry, we don't do. And there was, there's still, there was in the conversations that we had, there was still a lack of understanding of what research and inquiry meant. But they felt justified in going, that's not important at the moment because we need to do basic things, as opposed to those basic things would still be enhanced by doing research and inquiry activities. Coupled with that as well, they scored low on their own professional development. So they were going, you know, like, we haven't got time for our own professional development, our mentor professional development. So it was things that were kind of falling off because of the situation we've been through. And yes, we're in a new programme, three years into a new programme. 
And every year of that had been COVID impacted. So whereas we've done a lot of input on the sort of foundational things of our new clinical practice, I think they were getting lost in the sort of, we actually have to survive. And I think we know from the sort of the James study that was done here, but funded by Welsh Government, that initial teacher education really took a backseat within schools because they were more concerned with looking after their children. And, you know, I think possibly you go that was probably fair mm. you know you can understand why that was happening but it just meant that elements of the things that we want our students to do mm. got lost it's testimony really to the the power and impact of that tool because that then did have a direct impact on how we were working in the partnership to support and and, and we've got resources now to better support mentors in supporting their, their student teachers with research and inquiry so I'm interested in the fact that one of another of your findings was the idea that the reflections from the mentors could tell us what professional learning they need, which, as you rightly said at the start, has been very much a top down approach in, in previous years. Now we've got, you know, we can take the temperature of, of the whole sort of cohort of mentors and, and try to plan professional learning that is going to meet those general themes that are rising. Mm. Are you, are you, were you happy that that finding arose? And can you see that being of benefit to well, think, mentor agency? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that, I think if we were being aspirational, you'd want to say that, you. I, I think one of the things that underpinned my study was this idea of trying to develop agency in our mentors, like own your role, really want to develop and, and take ownership of it. But actually, there are these things that you need to do as a mentor. So, you know, own that part of it. But if you can see that there's something that you could be better at, how, how are you going to do that? And some of the things are purely just recognising that you're missing you can do it yourself but other things I think would probably be enhanced by working with somebody else or you might need some actual specialist help with that and it's getting that at that very bespoke level that's what we we need to work towards that's aspirational and I don't I think you know within some schools they are very good at, at trying to generate these community of mentors I don't think it's across the board you know we've got pockets of excellent practice but it's not it isn't across the board and you found something that perhaps can be justified and rationalized by what was going on post-covid but you did find a sort of distinction between what the pgc secondary mentors <coughs> needed post-covid compared with what the the pgc primary and ba primary i, I anticipate ba primary uh, mentors need to tell us about that well, it was interesting because, you know, you, uh, what part of the interview process was to actually just say, OK, you've, you've used a tool. What is it that you think you would like to develop? And what came through quite strongly with the secondary mentors was they, they wanted the opportunity to work with other mentors within their school. So a couple of them had just done it off their own backs. And, and it was it was, you know, fate, I suppose. They just sort of said one of them needed to have a bit of cover. So a mentor went and watched a student in a different subject area and just went, right, I've now looked at their forms as well. It's like, I've been really harsh on my, my student. I think I've now been harsh on my student. And that created a conversation with that other mentor about how they'd gone. They said, that would be a really useful thing to do. Sally, can you organise for us to do that? And it's just like, it's not within my power to say, you know, do this sort of cross-fertilisation where you swap students for a bit or you go, and, because it requires time, it, you know, They'd done it off their own back. Mm. But in primary schools, they were much more fluid. They, they, 
they move together. They're sort of involved in, in, in each other's classrooms. They, they have a little class, uh, staff room where they get together and talk. You have a, a less, a, fewer of them a lot of the time. And therefore, they, they have these casual conversations more often. That it wasn't something that they were asking for because mm-hmm. I think they feel much more of a community there anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and, again, and again, for the secondary, you know, they were actually being told, they were being isolated. They stayed in their room. They stayed within their department because COVID-wise, you weren't having staff moving around a big school Mm. and primary schools weren't operating like that. Mm. One of the things that really comes out of this is the incredible complexity of the role of the mentor and also how massively responsible their job is because they're having a disproportionate impact on the profession, really, aren't they? they? Every year they bring through these new people. So something that they do plugs into the profession very quickly. I think we've talked before about the need to kind of raise the status of the mentor role. And we, we know that some schools really kind of grant them some status. And we know that in some schools it's, it's probably never going to happen. But if a senior leader rang you up today and said, right, I really want to give my mentors status. I, I, I have the ideal that they're important, but I kind of don't know what to do. What would you advise them? What should they do to raise the status of their mentors? Well, I think give them time to do the role because we know that is problematic because time equates to money, but also provide them with appropriate training. You know, they, they, you've got to have time to do that. And, and I know this is being really aspirational and we are, you know, from a partnership point of view, we are providing this foundational inter-mentoring training but there are people that would fly given a little bit more support. So we, we, we need to personalise it more as well and take some responsibility there. But I think we are looking at 30 years of having this model of mentors and they have this critical role. Everybody knows that. Everybody would agree that. We know that to be done really well, and the literature says this, you need to train people, you need to select people, you need to give them time. And for 30 years, we've not really grasped that. So unless somebody at the top says, actually, that's really what we're going to do, we will fund this properly and then insist that it's done well, we are going to just keep going around it. We're chipping away at it. We're turning a tanker, but it is, it's a really slow process. Sally, you've obviously been through a mammoth six years of hard work so I thought we might sort of bring this back to you now and I know because I'm doing it myself there's a a, a massive reflective element of of the prof doc and I remember attending one of your earlier presentations which was a reflective aspect um, where you quite candidly talked about what you were finding out about yourself um, as a practitioner as a researcher in the process so having sort of finished it all now about to kind of cross the stage in a week's time what have you learned about yourself? Um, I think I'm bloody minded because <laughs> I really think it is. There are so many times in this process where you could just go, do you know what? I've had enough, you know, and I'm I'm old, actually, sort of professionally. I'm quite old. It's just like I don't need it. So it is bloody mindedness. As I'm watching other people and just going, hang on a minute, they They've done this and I must be able to do this. So actually, you know, just talking yourself through it. Like I've been, I think I'd be pretty resilient about it. But because I'm I've learned so much and I'm an avid learner. So that bit about just saying, I'm actually lots 
better at certain things, which were not what I set out to do. That's kept me going. I mean, I've had superb support. I have been so well supervised. You know, I've been exceptionally lucky, particularly when I talk to other people. I think that was not my experience. My experience has been really positive with, with the support I've had. But I have been quite direct by saying what I want mm. and driving it. And so I think that that sort of that might come from being an older person as well of just sort of saying I don't know if somebody would turn around to me and say you you can't ask for that but you know I I have led it but I felt confident to do that I was going to ask you about that actually because I know when Emma and I've talked about our doctoral studies that kind of supervisor relationship it's like a weird kind of family relationship you have with your supervisor and of course we are not sort of 22-year-old postgrads going into a doctorate. Um, you know, we're going in as relatively experienced professionals and maybe some of the people listening, you know, they're out there in the classroom and they, they quite fancy a doctorate. How does that kind of family dynamic work? What, does, what do the supervisors bring to you and how do you get your best out of them? Well, I think it changes. Um, I think initially I was very, I, I need help because I'm actually a bit clueless. You know, I really need direction. I need support. I don't know lots of stuff. And you, you start to learn a lot of things. And I think it moves much more towards you sort of saying, I need to talk to you because I've got this idea and you're driving it a lot more. So I think I went from clueless, I need help and support and encouragement to using as a sounding board really as going because I think I assumed as well that your supervisors know everything and they will say this that they don't they are there to guide and sort of direct but they don't know lots of stuff you they you, they they learn a lot from you because as you're you know finding out new things because it's not their area of expertise a lot of the time so I think that's what I would that for me was the sort of process, but they've nurtured as well. <laughs> they've really looked after me, and that bit where you are low and just them, um, just saying the right things and the way they deal with you. I think I think it is probably they learn what perhaps you need to keep going, and it's not that's not a sort of academic part. It's an emotional intelligence if you get really good supervisors. But I've learned how I'm treating my master's students now I've learned I would want to do it in this way now because I think that's good that's a, a good way to help and guide and support thanks for those insights Sally and certainly we've been the beneficiaries of uh, of your learning as we've been going through I remember distinctly being sat outside in the brilliant sunshine and you teaching us about systematic literature reviews so you've, <laughs> the ripple effect I think from different phases in your in your doctoral studies is, has actually been really huge and 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 sort of goes beyond just just the kind of focus of, of your particular study yeah I think I think that's the bit that I perhaps wouldn't have appreciated beforehand you know initially it started out as um an academic and it was a challenge an academic challenge and then it becomes bigger than that where you you realize that you're actually changing yourself and becoming perhaps more thoughtful you know more knowledgeable more useful because you are more knowledgeable so it, it is it does uh, you know that probably sounds a bit cheesy but you know you kind of grow more as a person which you know I'm 59 I quite like the idea that I'm not I'm not the finished product I'm still growing so what's next for you well <laughs> more tennis now that I'm not doing this all the time I've I've got to say that was one that's one of the things is 
I haven't moved enough and I'm a mover. So I was like, I need to move more. Um, I think really trying to take some of this work through and, and make it usable. You know, let's actually, I, I hate the idea that you do some research and then it just go and that was it. You know, you got what you wanted out of it. It's just like, what a, what a waste of time. And it was very much when you, as part of the reflection was how do you use research? You know, because that idea that, yeah, write a nice paper for 6,000 words. How many of my mentors would ever read that? You know, and you just go, that's not, that's not. So it's about disseminating it. And I think, you know, something like this, I, I think is a really nice opportunity to go, okay, I'm sharing this to a wider audience now. But taking opportunities to feed it into our mentoring program and just say, look, let's make some more use of it. And, and the other things that we've learnt from that, you know, sharing with yourselves, but also developing mentoring here. And, and then obviously I'm happy to share with anybody, you know, perfectly happy for anybody to take the tool. That's that's no problem. But it's it's trying to make it easy, accessible, you know, even basic things like where do you get it from? You know, there's this lovely tool. Where, where do you get it? You know, we say, well, we'll put it on our team site. And we know that people have issues with that. Okay, university tutors, could you send it to senior mentors? So just get the tool out there. So if you want to use it, use it. But it would be really nice at the end of this clinical practice to say, look, this tool is available to all schools, all mentors. Use it as a starting point. And I think aspirationally, we would like our university tutors and our senior mentors to be using it to have conversations with all our mentors to go, what what do you need? And and start to design our, our provision from, from needs rather than us. We know certain things that we know our mentors need, but we don't know all the things. So that it's it possibly a top down and a top up, a bottom up way of operating a bit more. So Sally, we've come to the end of our deep discussion. And as a regular guest on the podcast, you'll remember that we've got two short slots. And the first one I'd like you to tell us is something interesting, something you've been reading, not necessarily to do with your day job that the listeners might find interesting. And I have enjoyed reading, not for my prof doc. So I have to say, um, Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. And it's just a brilliant read. I think it's, um, particularly as a female, I loved the idea that she isn't the things that you might think she is. And the times that she's lived through. And it isn't about chemistry or lessons in chemistry. That's that's a clever title, but it's just a brilliant book, which gives you a, you, you'll feel a range of emotions reading it. I would highly recommend that. Loved it. I wonder if I can guess what your something to try might be. <laughs> I would love everybody to try my self-reflection tool. I'd love our mentors to just get to the end of clinical practice, take a breather, sit with a cup of coffee, gin and tonic, and <laughs> look at it and just go, what were the things that I did with my student teacher that supported them, helped them make progress? What are the things perhaps I would like to develop in my in my practice? And how am I going to go about that? There might be some doctoral study there and comparing the responses, coffee field and gin and tonic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose if anyone wants to find you, they, they, we can, they can Google your name. Um, and we've all got a staff page, haven't we, with emails on? We have. And I am very happy to share my work with anybody who would like to read it. 
Dr. Sally Bethel, thank you very much for your time. Um, I'm sure you'll be back again. We'll come find you. I'm <laughs> thinking on current progress by season 10, it'll be Professor Sally Bethel. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back with you in two weeks' time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Dr. Sally Bethel from here at Cardiff Met. Thanks to Sally for joining us. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter at Talk Teaching Pod if you'd like to give us a follow and we'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. <laughs> <laughs>